Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I am Nick. And today we are here to talk about the new report by the United States government on Indian boarding schools across history. For those that are looking for more depth on the horrific colonial practices that took place during expansion, so before the creation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, we have a number of episodes in our Myth is America series. For this one, we are going to pick up um, right around the turn of the 20th century. So without further ado, um, Nick started some research on this report, so I'll let him kind of kick this off. Yeah, we're going to provide, I'll give you the details of the report in a few minutes, but just know that it's a new report that was just published in May of 2022 by the Department of the Interior to investigate the history of Indian boarding schools. So we're going to cover the findings of that report in detail. Like Jared said, we provided history before that in detail in many other episodes in the Myth is America series, but we do here want to provide just a little bit of historical context that is applicable to the findings of the report that we think is important. And basically, we just want to briefly cover sort of the U.S. government's official policy on indigenous people. After and conquest. Based, yeah, after yeah conquest. exactly. Yeah. After the conquest. Like Jared said, we're skipping all of the colonial process, basically, uh, the beginnings anyway, and the initial atrocities, and getting more into, I mean, the, the two-pronged approach is what we want to discuss, right? It was the two-pronged approach to, to, quote, deal with, right, the Indians. And the first one was land dispossession. So they wanted to systemically remove them from their land and move them to smaller and smaller and smaller, I mean, ever smaller plots so that they could appropriate the land for their own uses. And then the second was to assimilate them into the culture of the United States. And for the younger generations, this was achieved largely through schooling, which is the focus of this report and the focus of this episode. Um, and then Jared has some things he wanted to add under this point, this assimilation item as well. So one of the things that took place um, after, again, the, the conquest and the wars, um, assimilation really actually gets legs after um, what took place at Wounded Knee and the various Sioux Wars. As Some see that as kind of like the last last stand of real indigenous resistance, although some might also say there was there was Apache resistance and Hawaiian resistance and so on and so forth that, that went a little bit further into it. But in general, from from the U.S., the dominant oppressive perspective, it really was the Sioux Wars and how they started to try and change it. They, the, the goal was still the same, land land dispossession, uh, assimilation, um, ethnic cleansing in a way, um, but they tried to do it a little bit more, mm, how do I put this, softly. There's a there's a pretty interesting quote that kind of comes, uh, comes to us um, from Janice Akus um, on entering what one of these Indian residential schools that was meant to like assimilate people. Now, now technically hers was in Saskatchewan, which is Canada, but I think it still kind of colors what we're trying to talk about, what was actually taking place in this attempt at assimilation after the wars. She says, and I quote, from the day my mother walked my brother's sister and me up to that ominously look looming structure, I began to understand the depth of those black robes, power and influence. One of the rules we quickly learned was that boys and girls would have be completely segregated. Consequently, I knew my brother Fred only as a blurred face behind a wired fence that I passed on my way to school. Soon after, I was torn away from my sisters and herded away to have my hair shorn, powdered with DDT insecticides, supposedly because all Indians were infected with lice, and then showered with severely hot water. 
So the reason I like that quote is because, again, rather than just conquest and war like it had been for centuries prior to this, we're now seeing um, indigenous peoples being treated as more or less like prisoners of war, even the children taking into these 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 camps. They're calling them schools, but they're they're almost I mean, they're really symbolic of what concentration camps would become uh, a little bit later on. Any thoughts on that, Nick? No, I mean, it's, it's no secret at this point, right? It's cliche, but true that part of the inspiration for the Nazi concentration camps were the way that the indigenous peoples were dealt with in the United States. Absolutely. So just some more background on this report, because I think it's important to understand sort of its lineage, I guess, which is like disgusting, but it's, a, it's just one, the most recent in a long series of reports that are published by the U.S. government and other institutions investigating the ways that indigenous people were dealt with by the government. One of the first reports that was really influential in this arena was titled the Merriam Report. It was published in 1928 by the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. And it was under the direction of Lewis Merriam from the University of Chicago, thus the name, the Merriam Report. Um, this quote that I'm gonna read, these quotes that discuss the Merriam Report come from a latter report named the Kennedy Report, which we'll talk about in a few seconds. But it says, quote, the major findings of the Merriam Report were that one, Indians were excluded from management of their own affairs, and two, Indians were receiving poor quality of services, especially health and education, from public schools who were supposed to be serving their needs. So critical, obviously, uh, right off the bat, it continues, quote, the report, the Merriam Report, was highly critical of boarding schools, both because of their inadequate facilities and the manner in which they were operated. It condemned the practice of taking children from their home and placing them in off-reservation boarding schools. It stressed repeatedly the need for relevant instructional curriculum adapted to the individual needs and backgrounds of the students. It chided the students for failing to consider or adapt to the language of the child. It asked why the Indians could not participate in deciding the direction of their schools, and it suggested that public schools with their traditional curriculums were not the answer either. So this report, all the way back in 1928, was highly critical of this practice already. And this report inspired the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, which actually sought to reverse the national policy of trying to assimilate indigenous people into American culture. Um, and instead, it supported the strengthening of their culture and giving them control over their own affairs. Unfortunately, this um, Indian Reorganization Act, known as the IRA of 1934, actually didn't really accomplish anything because there was a big difference between what policymakers were hoping for and what was actually put into practice because, again, of the centuries of history of oppression and subjugation and, and racism and all of those other types of things. So um, I've done a lot of research on the IRA. The primary interests of this act, as it was drafted by John Collier and introduced at the 73rd Congress, included cessation of land allotments, um, construction of semi-autonomous tribal governments, and financial aid for Indian affairs. So like, it, it, it looks good. On paper, it appears that the IRA is an honest piece of legislation that's basically meant to satisfy an abrogated people whose entire way of life had not been theirs to control for about four centuries. However, in reality, ratification of the IRA proved to be one of the most divisive um, issues on reservations, and its implementations fomented deeper feelings of resentment among Native peoples. 
Collier's later report entitled An Indian Renaissance While Seeking to Amend the Horrors of the Colonial Past reveals a very white ethos that is notably paternalistic and in many ways still emblematic of assimilation aims, constitutions, Western economic incentives, etc. So essentially what they're saying here is we're going to do these things, but we still want them to act white, even if they are controlling a little bit of their own destiny. Any thoughts before we keep digging in? No, I mean, like you said, I think that initially the report, not the report, but the act actually was structured in a way to mean well. Like I think Collier genuinely wanted good for the indigenous people and then going through the process of legislation and the bureaucracy and trying to just reconcile with the history of what was going on, it just became a disaster. Right. Even if, you know, some of the people behind it wanted to actually do good. Not that Collier didn't have his own problems, but I think that they actually wanted to make change, you know. Yeah, he's not like a bad dude, right? So, right. I mean, but in contrast to Collier's 1935 report, when he's thinking about it, Robert Brunette, who's indigenous, he's Brule Sioux, in um, a basically scathing critique called A Blueprint for Elected Tyranny, fundamentally spoke against the IRA. Burnett used the IRA to basically exemplify further state-sponsored domination, veiled as a conciliatory act. He never cites Collier by name, and perhaps that in and of itself reveals that Collier may truly have been um, well-intentioned as he appears in his report and crafting of the IRA, but intentions are really only as good as their results. So for Burnett, those results became a solidified hegemonic bureaucracy manned by both Indians and whites. He goes on to say, like, and I quote, Built into the BIA chairman system were all of the weaknesses, but none of the strengths of local government in middle America. The white agent has retained in a form of superintendent, a white BIA appointee who holds veto power over tribal finances. Through the superintendent, the BIA could still tell the Indian people how many cows they could buy or sell, how much timber they could cut, and what their school curricula should be. There was no system of checks and balances, no procedure through which inequities could be righted. It was a blueprint for elected tyranny. Burnett argues that even though tribes elected their own officials and crafted their own constitutions, that there are intentional amendments written into IRA policy that ensure these governments and laws remain subservient to the Secretary of the Interior, i.e. Collier, through varying grades of U.S. government bureaucracy. And even though on paper Collier's IRA promotes Indian self-governance, true autonomy remained far-fetched. A specific hierarchy was still constructed by the IRA that superseded the supposed indigenous leadership. Um, so anyway, I mean, like I said, it's, 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 it's tough to kind of like dig into all of the nuances of what was going on in Collier's mind. I do think he was well, again, well-intentioned. Um, but because of him, like operating under the dominant hegemony, even like he couldn't even imagine a world in which Native Americans maybe even go back to prior forms of governance and ways of life and things along those lines. So despite all of the negatives of the IRA, it did actually in like, you know, Collier getting bogged down in bureaucracy and so forth. It did actually result in many, many improvements, despite Burnett's criticisms, which are all valid, et cetera. It was still, you know, resulted in some improvements compared to how things were before this era. We must note that, however, World War II then happened, which clearly distracted the government in many other ways. And combined with that, John Collier, who is the commissioner of Indian Affairs, and like we said, actually was probably well-meaning, resigned in 1945. And as a result of those two things, any of the good policies that had come out of the IRA were almost completely rolled back. So any of the improvements and the advancements that were made as a result of that period, 
even though, like we said, they were without critique, were completely rolled back uh, in the 1940s as a result of World War II and Collier's resignation. And in fact, in 1944, a House Select Committee on Indian Affairs offered recommendations for what they said, and I quote, the final solution of the Indian problem. And I just want to point out the gall of using that term after it had clearly been used by the Nazis in World War II and not shying away from it at all. And the similarities there obviously should be palpable for everyone listening or watching this. Right. And it's not even, yeah, it's not even the first time government officials had used terminology like final solution, extermination, those types of things. Like I said, we've got a number of episodes that kind of guide us all the way back to to George Washington himself uttering such words and orders to, Mm -hmm. I think it was John Sullivan, one of his generals in, in, in trying to wipe out what was it, the Iroquois League of Peace and Power. This is a common theme throughout U- U.S. history, right? Like mm-hmm. this idea of exterminating um, Native Americans, for lack of a better term, um, ethnic cleansing. It's genocidal by all definitions. So. Right. so some of the suggestions from this 1944 House Select Committee on Indian Affairs included closing of the good schools, which were opened under the IRA, removing indigenous children from their families and once again sending them to off-reservation schools, changing the education policy with the goal of Indian education, according to the committee, quote, should be made to make the Indian child a better American rather than to equip him simply to be a better Indian, withdraw federal services from indigenous people, quote, the goals were to get rid of Indians and Indian trust land by terminating federal recognition and services and relocating Indians into cities off the reservation. I mean, blatantly just remove them from their land and move them and try to assimilate them into the cities throughout the United States so that the U.S. government could take control of all of their land. So these are the suggestions in 1944, which then brought about the period known as the termination period. So that eventual failure of the IRA, um, because of that, the government initiated new directives on how they should deal with Native Americans. Their conclusion merited full assimilation. The goal was to terminate the existence of individual tribes and to individuate the indigenous people. So another good source from the time period, uh, indigenous source, is Adam Fortunate Eagle. He's Chippewa. He was a key player in the famed Alcatraz protest and occupation. And he goes on to describe the solution conjured up in like an 1800-page report prepared in 1952 by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and government land speculators. So he goes on to say, and I quote, Indians called this 1,800-page report the Doomsday Book. The report discussed the complicated task of eliminating the reservation system and concluded that the expense and difficulty were justified by the prospect of gaining control of the natural resources held by the tribes. In addition to timber and water, it was estimated that 23 Western tribes controlled 33% of the country's low sulfur coal, 80% of the nation's uranium reserves, and between 3 and 10% of the gas and petroleum reserves. Considering all these natural resources, one would think that the BIA would have trained Indians to develop these resources to create jobs and wealth for all Indians on the reservation. Self-sufficiency would have been the humane solution, but it might have interfered with the profit that stood to be made. The government followed through on the report's recommendations, and in 1953, the House of Representatives passed Resolution 108, which is better known as the Termination Act. The slow process of disengaging the government, Native Americans on the reservations from one another provided the BIA another chance to disenfranchise a wounded people. 
The BIA relocation programs brought American Indians with little understanding of the American way of life into urban settings, and after offering af, and after offering the absolute minimum in aid, they left them to fend for themselves. So essentially, they just dropped a whole. They removed all these people from the reservations that had these natural resources underneath them. And of course, those reservations were originally chosen because um, in prior decades, people didn't know what was like underneath the ground in most of them, right? But once we discovered what was underneath the ground, well, now that land is valuable, right? So now we need to move them again. So we moved them to land that we thought was worthless. And then when we find out that it's still worthwhile, we move them again, this time to urban environments, um, and basically just drop them off there and expect them to just want to live an urban American life after being on the reservations, which of course they didn't necessarily want to be on to begin with, right? Any thoughts? Nope. Okay. So this leads us to, so that was the Merriam report in 1928, then the IRA and John Collier, then the rolling back of those policies, which actually were a step forward to some extent. And then uh, termination. the termination period, yeah. right? In 1969, the next, another report was published by the US government called the Kennedy Report. And in fact, the modern report that we're going to talk about today mentions the Kennedy Report many times and quotes it. The Kennedy Report's official title was The Indian Education, a National Tragedy, a National Challenge. 1969 Report of the Committee on Labor and Public Welfare, United States Senate, made by its special subcommittee on Indian education. That was the official entire title. It was the result of an effort to investigate the, quote, problems of education for American Indians. It's referred to as the Kennedy Report because it was dedicated to Robert Kennedy, who was the first chair of the Special Subcommittee on Indian Education. The report was also issued by Robert's uh, brother, Senator Ted Kennedy, who was also an advocate for indigenous rights. If you know anything about Robert Kennedy, he was a massive advocate for not only Indian, but all civil rights mm -hmm. uh, of all kinds. Um, the Kennedy Report from 1969 actually contains a lot of good history about the U.S. government's atrocities to the indigenous people. Uh, I mean, the full span of the spectrum. So we'll leak that in the show notes. It's a really good primary source that was published by the government itself. Um, this is how they described the government policy. Quote, from the beginning, federal policy toward the Indian was based on the desire to dispossess him of his land. Education policy was a function of our land policy. And until the final Indian uprising in the late 19th century took place in the context of wave after wave of invasion by white settlers reinforced by military conquest. Treaties almost always signed under duress were the window dressing whereby we expropriated the Indian's land and pushed him back across the continent. Beginning with President Washington, the stated policy of the federal government was to replace the Indian's culture with our own. This was considered advisable as the cheapest and safest way of subduing the Indians, of providing a safe habitat for the country's white inhabitants, of helping the whites acquire desirable land, and of changing the Indian's economy so that he would be content with less land. Education was a weapon by which these goals were to be accomplished. So the Kennedy Report is highly, highly critical of the U.S. government's policies and approaches towards the indigenous people, as it clearly has stated here. And it explains in depth all of the government's policies and how they basically violated the rights of the indigenous people, you know, step by step and over and over and how all of the, all the things we know now, I hope, right? The treaties were just window dressings and were false promises and were never lived up to and so forth. This is the government itself publishing these things in 1969. So the other thing Go I ahead. wanted to add real briefly is that like, while we can 
I don't actually want to give the government a whole hell of a lot of credit here for publishing these findings. This research was actually motivated by agency. One of the things mm-hmm. that I think we we forget when we talk about the history of oppression, especially in the United States, is that the oppressed often um, resist and they exert their own agency. And then that is what prompts change or government investigation. So they didn't just wake up. Um, the right. Kennedys didn't just wake up one. And then later, the Nixon administration didn't just wake up one morning, roll out of bed and we're like, I feel bad for the indigenous people. No, it was the Indian of all nations movement, the occupation of Alcatraz later on in 1973, the wounded knee occupation. Um I mean, there was a the formation of American Indian movement, if I didn't already say that, AIM. Like the Red Power movement is what prompted the government to look into these, in, look into the past, essentially. So again, this was not just out of the raw kindness of their heart. Their mm-hmm. hand was forced by mm-hmm. protesters, occupations, um, and resistance movements. So this report, combined with all of the things Jared just mentioned, ushered in a new era of government policies toward indigenous people. It's really credited with, you know, this is a landmark sort of bookend. I don't want to say like everything stopped, but this really marks the end, uh, at least the boarding school policy, which is what we're going to talk about here in a second. So the current report is now, you know, the most modern manifestation of this long line of the U.S. government investigating this uh, thing. But like Jared said, even this report isn't just a result of like out of the goodness of their own heart, the Department of Interior wanted to find out what was going on. Many activists for years and years have been trying to research and quantify the atrocities that were committed by the U.S. government against the indigenous peoples and specifically at the boarding schools. Um, and they suspected that there were many mass graves that were present at these schools that contained the bodies of hundreds of children. But the U.S. government basically didn't, wasn't motivated to look into that until in May of 2021, a mass grave of more than 200 indigenous children were discovered at the site of a former boarding school in Canada. And we'll post a link to that article in the show notes. As a result of this, the U.S. government basically said, you know, this is inevitable. We should be, we should find the skeletons in the closet, like quite literally. Right, because we know we have them. And before it just gets uncovered, we should just do the research ourselves. So um, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who herself is a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe. Um, and in fact, if I remember, I didn't write it down here, but she was one of the first indigenous women elected to U.S. government politics. I think her and one other woman got elected in the same election. So she was one of two, the first. Um, anyways. She directs the Department of the Interior to conduct an investigation into the federal Indian boarding school system in June 2021. And these are the four goals of the investigation that they defined. Identifying federal Indian boarding school facilities and sites, identifying names and tribal identities of Indian children who are placed in federal Indian boarding schools, identifying locations of marked and unmarked burial sites of remains of Indian children located at or near school facilities, and incorporating tribal and individual viewpoints, including including those of descendants, on the experiences in and impacts of the federal Indian boarding school system. The title of this report, which we just mentioned was published in May of 2022, is Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative Investigative Report, Volume 1. So this is just the first volume of many to come, presumably, about the U.S. government's investigation into this, uh, the public boarding school system for the indigenous children. Um, Anything to add before we get into the findings? No, let's just dig right into the findings. 
So they found that the federal Indian boarding school system was expansive, consisting of 408 federal Indian boarding schools, comprised of 431 specific sites across 37 states or then territories, including 21 schools in Alaska and seven schools in Hawaii. The appendix of this report um, contains maps of all of these sites, which if you're watching this on YouTube, you're looking at it now. If you are uh, listening to this in your podcast app, uh, we'll put in the show notes on the website uh, image of this map and a link to it. Mm -hmm. But this is the first official quantification of the boarding school system. Prior to this, you know, everyone knew that it was happening. The U.S. government published, you know, that this was happening, but no one had actually, actually ever done the work to identify all of the exact sites and to quantify them. Um, so that's just an interesting finding. Like I said, this isn't earth shattering. Everyone knew, but we didn't know that there were 408 of them, right, as an example. Um, so that's finding number one. Anything on that one? No, I mean, it's just interesting that, that, that it took until 2022 to do this type of research. If you would ask exactly. somebody back in, I don't know, whatever, 1932, how many like Catholic schools, for example, mm -hmm. were in the United States, they'd have that number like ready to go, right? <laughs> exactly. Finding number two, multiple generations of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian children were induced or compelled by the federal government to experience the federal Indian boarding school system, given their political and legal status as Indians and Native Hawaiians. Then the report says, of course, many families resisted and refused to send their children. The government responded with more oppressive regulations. As just one example, the Act of March 3rd, 1839 determined that, quote, Secretary of the Interior may, in his discretion, establish such regulations as will prevent the issuing of rations or the furnishing of subsistence, either in money or in kind, to the head of any Indian family for, on or, for or on account of any Indian child or children between the ages of 8 and 21 years who shall not have attended school during the preceding year in accordance with such regulations. So just so we can clarify that legalese, it gave the power of the U.S. government to withhold food, things that they needed to survive if they weren't sending their children to these boarding schools, which, by the way, were off the reservation. So basically, it was sending your kid away and you may never see them again. So if you decided that you weren't down with that, then the U.S. government will withdraw any aid from you whatsoever. Yeah. And, and here's one of the things that I wish the report spent more time talking about and researching, although I guess it's more difficult to do that, is how many actual kidna kidnappings took place by the BIA? Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes oh, that's taking place. Like, even though parents resisted or refused to send their children, as the government um, asserts in this report, the BIA agents would go kidnap them off the reservations, right? Taking mm -hmm. them. And I use that word intentionally. Like it was kidnapping and taking these children away from their parents, as we learned in the quote that kind of opened this episode, splitting them up from their siblings. Mm -hmm. All of those types of things um, are what happens during traditionally what we call ethnic cleansing campaigns. So, yep. The report concludes, quote, the United States has applied such federal regulations, including removal of Indi Indian children to off-reservation federal Indian boarding schools without parental consent. So basically, uh, the, the euphemistically saying we kidnapped kids. Uh, the government kidnapped these children, right? Like Jared just said. Finding number three, the twin federal policy of Indian territorial dispossession and Indian assimilation through Indian education extended beyond the federal Indian boarding school system including an identified 1,000 plus other federal and non-federal institutions, including Indian day schools, sanitariums, asylums, orphanages, and standalone dormitories that involved education of Indian people, mainly Indian children. So basically they're saying this system wasn't just limited to these 400 plus schools that we've identified. This actually was a wide reaching system 
that institutionally functioned to educate these children and remove them from their families. In fact, they said here, we've identified a thousand plus other federal and non-federal institutions that functioned in this way too, not just these 400 schools. And it's still taking place. I mean, honestly, it's not even just taking place here. It's taking place in Canada. It's actually Mm -hmm. taking place in Australia, New Zealand still with children that are Aboriginal and Maori. Like this is a, a, a policy that seems to be um, almost global, basically in any conquered colonial or former colonial holding, this seems to be the policy to this day, right? We're talking mm-hmm. like 21st century. Right. Number four, this one is a doozy. Funding for the federal Indian boarding school system included both federal funds through congressional appropriations and funds obtained from tribal trust accounts for the benefit of Indians and maintained by the United States. So tell us what a tribal trust account is. I mean, it's an account. I mean, as we kind of learned about when we were, when uh, Burnett was critiquing the IRA, these tribal trust accounts are set aside for like different nations. Of course, you have to go through like the rigmarole of being a recognized nation by the United States government and by the BIA. And of course, technically they will say like certain people, certain indigenous people, tribal leaders or elders or whatever, each, 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 each tribe has its own like values in terms of political system. But regardless, they are in, to- they are in control of these trusts, but actually they answer to the BIA on those. And in most of the time, the people that the BIA selects to work with within the tribe are people that are what we would call assimilated, right? Or willing to play ball with the government in terms of extraction of natural resources from lands, or maybe building up of casinos, those types of things. Those are the things that are benefited from these trusts. And so the trusts, like on the surface, right, you could read it as well, in good faith to take care of the indigenous populations, the government has set up trust accounts for these tribes that are large sums of money to provide resources. But as Jared said, The accounts were still controlled by the U.S. government, and often there was rampant corruption where they were being spent on all kinds of things that didn't actually help the indigenous people. And so what they found in this most recent investigation that actually they use a lot of that trust funding to pay for the schools, the the Indian boarding school system that was just an, an atrocity that was responsible for removing kids from their parents and many deaths, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So they're basically using their own money to pay for these schools that were incredibly detrimental to the tribe, which is just outrageous. Which is, which I mean, and again, these were schools that were meant to uh, ethnically cleanse through, again, removal of language, removal of cultural, Mm -hmm. removal of history, all of it. Right. Number five, the federal Indian boarding school system deployed militarized and identity alteration methodologies to assimilate American Indian, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian people, primarily children through education. This is a quote from the report. Quote, this included, number one, renaming, renaming Indian children from Indian to English names. Two, cutting the hair of Indian children. Three, discouraging or preventing the use of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian languages, religions, and cultural practices. And four, organizing Indian and Native Hawaiian children into units to perform military drills. So this is like straight up boot camp type stuff, right? This is resocialization at its just fundamental level, right? Renaming the kids, cutting their hair, all of these symbolic things that just completely, absolutely destroy their indigenous identities and rebuild them up as quote unquote American, right? 
And its precedent was set, again, we didn't want to spend time talking about the conquest period, but the precedent was set by these things called praying towns that all the way back when the pilgrims mm-hmm. showed up, that was the same type of thing. They would steal the Indian children, Native American children, take them to these praying towns to Christianize them, and they would do all of the same thing. So the practice had been in place for like centuries. It's just more systematized now. Yep. Number six, finding number six, the federal Indian boarding school system predominantly utilized manual labor of American Indians, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian children to compensate for the poor conditions of school facilities and lack of financial support from the federal government. Quote, the federal Indian boarding school system predominantly included manual labor of American Indian, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian children as part of school curricula, including but not limited to the following livestock and poultry raising dairying, Western agricultural production, fertilizing, lumbering, brick making, cooking, garment making, irrigation system development, and working on the railroad system. I mean, these could be described as work camps, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the conditions of the schools were so atrocious that they would use the labor of the children to upkeep them, right? Raising the livestock, etc., And they would also use them to make goods that they would sell, right? Brick making, Garment making, irrigation system. I mean, working on the railroad. I mean, just these are kids. You know these what I mean? These are gulags. These are gulags. No, 100%. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, these are gulags. I mean, every part of even the modern mass industrial, mass industrial, um, prison industrial complex is actually, even the prison industrial complex in terms of labor and all that other was actually, again, it is a derivative of the way the government was treating Native Americans first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And then 6B sort of is they uncovered, you know, this was intentional to disrupt tribal economies. It says, quote, the federal Indian boarding school system focused on manual labor and vocational skills that left American Indian, Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian graduates with employment options often irrelevant to the industrial U.S. economy, further disrupting tribal economies. So they intentionally did not provide them with any skills that would be valuable uh, in industry, right, which clearly is the direction that the economy was heading throughout the 20th century. They instead intentionally just had them do manual labor on the farms and so forth, which if they were lucky enough to get out of the schooling system, they had no marketable skills like whatsoever, you know. Creating dependency, again, a policy that is now just systematized. It was already Mm -hmm. a policy before, again, going all the way back to the introduction of of metal and guns and stuff into these local economies. And now, of course, we fast forward hundreds of years, you're still creating dependency and dependency leads to subjugation. Finding number seven. The federal Indian boarding school system discouraged or prevented the use of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian languages or cultural or religious practices through punishment, including corporal punishment. Quote, the federal Indian boarding school rules were often enforced through punishment, including corporal punishment, such as solitary confinement, flogging, withholding food, whipping, slapping, and cuffing. The federal Indian boarding school system at times made older Indian children punish younger Indian children. Now, We have talked about this strategy countless times throughout our program with so many different examples, right? But specifically, the report talks about how they created sort of pseudo court systems within the schools where the older children would act as judge and jury and punish the younger children. So if the younger child transgressed in some way, they would be sent to their elder, you know, all, all of them are children, right? But the elder children for judgment, which is just... I mean, completely ridiculous. We've talked about this strategy so many times. 
yeah, I mean, you don't need to look into like whatever dystopian or apocalyptic film or literature as we've been talking about the last few episodes mm -hmm. to see this type of behavior. In fact, actually, I would argue it's even more apparent in United States past. Dig into the mm -hmm. history, right? If you want to be entertained by that type of um, masochist type of shit, just look to the past. Finding number eight. Tribal preferences for the possible disinternment or re repatriation of remains of children discovered in marked and unmarked burial sites across the federal Indian boarding school system vary widely. Depending on the religious and cultural practices of an Indian tribe, Alaska Native Village, or the Native Hawaiian community, it may prefer to disinter or repatriate any remains of a child discovered across the federal Indian boarding school system for return to the child's home territory or to leave the child's remains undisturbed in its current burial site. Moreover, some burial sites contain human remains or parts of remains of mutable individuals or human remains that were relocated from other burial sites, thereby preventing tribal and individual identification. So basically they're saying this is complicated, right? When we start having conversations about what to do with these children's bodies that we're discovering, it varies widely based on tribe and their traditions. So some people would like to bring their bodies home. Some people would prefer to leave their body in the land uh, when it, where it was originally buried. Also, it's complicated because there are other bodies that aren't just indigenous children that are in these burial sites, et cetera. So basically, this is just a report saying part of our initial findings is that this is messy. The conversation about how to deal with these remains is messy. Finding number nine, the federal government has not provided a forum or opportunity for survivors or descendants of survivors of federal Indian boarding schools or their families to voluntarily detail their experience in the federal Indian boarding school system. Weird. So, Weird. Yeah, strange. Yeah, why, why have they not done that? E yeah. Even even some of those other examples I've provided, some of the more abrogating examples in, in Australia or New Zealand or even Tasmania, I've do, been doing some research. And, and while I don't want to insinuate that they're good, um, they've at least started to try and come to grips with this by speaking mm -hmm. to indigenous populations there that it dealt with the colonial wrath and then, of course, the assimilation wrath of those societies. The United States refuses still to come to grips with it. Although I will say that this report, to its credit for what it's worth. That's the key. By hearing from the indigenous themselves, not filing their own damn reports, but hearing from the people. No, but I will say part of the investigation of this report, to their credit, if we must give them credit at somehow, was that. They've talked to many, part of the report was reaching out to many tribes. I don't want to go through the methodology of the report, the investigative team, because it was boring. But if you're interested, you can read that. But they actually did, at least this time reach out to the tribes and get their input, et cetera. And we're hoping based on number nine, et cetera, right? Part of this is going to be providing them a forum. Like that would be like step one, right? Anyways. Well, and that's the key is the forum where it's not like edited or going through exactly. the process, right? Like where they can speak freely. That's the difference, right? Okay. A hundred percent. And giving them, giving them the avenue through which to do that, right? Like it says here, the forum. I mean, that's key, right? Not just publishing what they have to say in a report and, you know, making it as bureaucratic as possible, but letting them do it on their own terms in the ways that they want and letting them say what they want and respond in the ways that they want. Right. Um, then they have five more conclusions that they said, you know, based on our initial findings and some of the difficulties we ran into, there are five additional things that we would want to mention. The first is the United States creation of the federal Indian boarding school system was part of a broader policy aimed at acquiring collective territories from the tribes. I'm summarizing here, right? Um, et cetera. So it was part of an intentional system with the broader goal of Indian territorial dispossession for the expansion of the United States. So fine, the Kennedy Report 
had already laid that out uh, in detail in 1969, but it's here again. Two, the assimilation of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian people eventually became an objective of federal policy in and of itself. The federal Indian boarding school policies targeted Indian children as one method to accomplish this objective. So we kind of know that too. We talked about that in the uh, Kennedy report as well. The intentional targeting and removal of American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian children to achieve the goal of forced assimilation of Indian people was both traumatic and violent. Based on initial research, the department finds that hundreds of children died throughout the federal Indian boarding school system. The department expects that continued investigation will reveal the approximate number of Indian children who died at federal Indian boarding schools to be in the thousands or tens of thousands. Many of those children were buried in unmarked or poorly maintained burial sites far from their Indian tribes, Alaska Native villages, the Native Hawaiian community, and families often hundreds or even thousands of miles away. The department's research revealed at least 53 different burial sites across the federal Indian boarding school system and leads to an expectation that there are many more burial sites that will be identified with further research. The deaths of Indian children while under the care of the federal government or federally supported institutions led to the breakup of Indian families and the erosion of Indian tribes, Alaska Native villages, and the Native Hawaiian community. Okay, so this is uh, one of the big findings, right, is they already have discovered burial sites and they anticipate, and they clearly will, that they are going to find uh, a number of other ones. And they estimate that the number of dead children that they will find will be uh, possibly in the tens of thousands. Number four, many more Indian children who survived the federal Indian boarding school system lived with their expectations from the schools. Sorry, lived with their experiences from the schools. So trauma, right? Moreover, several generations of Indian children experienced the federal Indian boarding school system. The federal Indian boarding school system directly disrupted Indian families, tribes, Alaska Native villages, and Native Hawaiian communities for nearly two centuries. So they're saying, even it's not just the children that actually attended the schools, right? This is generational. And I'm going to actually get into some of this in just a second. But it wasn't just that, right? The survivors clearly had to live with this trauma, right? So that's one issue. But it, we have to understand how this led to centuries of generational trauma that was a result of this institution of the federal Indian boarding school system and the atrocities that it perpetrated against Indi indigenous people. So, number five, go ahead. Wait, no, 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 do number five. Okay, number five. Further review is required to determine the reach and impact of the violence and trauma inflicted on Indian children throughout the federal Indian boarding school system. The department has recognized that targeting Indian children for the federal policy of Indian assimilation contributed to the loss of the following. One, life. Two, physical and mental health. Three, territories and wealth. Four, tribal and family relations. And five, the use of tribal languages. This policy also caused the erosion of tribal religious and cultural practices for Indian tribes, Alaska Native villages, and the Native Hawaiian community, and over many generations. So they're basically saying it's not just, right, we can't simplify this. There's a really complex intersection of negative impacts that this had for centuries of generations after the schools, you know. Go so ahead. the disappointing finding that is overlooked, I guess it's not a finding of this report, but what we know was taking place in, 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 in areas like the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania were the forced hysterectomies as well. Now, we already mm -hmm. have an episode on that and we dug into it for sterilization of young um, Native American women at these boarding schools to essentially hope that they end these bloodlines, which again is, is genocide. 
I, also, I didn't mention it here, but it is in the report that, and this wasn't from this report, but actually the Kennedy report right. revealed that there was extensive sexual assault also at right. these schools. I mean, it was rampant. So I am just curious as to why that finding that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty well known at this point, mm -hmm. how that was left out of this report, because well, I mean, to get, the time it took place at the boarding schools, these, his, these forces. Yeah, were for sure. I mean, it's weird because this report is like a miss, like it's a mixture of previous findings from the Kennedy report, which it yeah. quotes at length and some new findings. Right. So I, I, yeah, not everything's in there. Some things are in there. There weren't in others. And like, it's kind of weird, but whatever, it's volume one. We'll see what happens. But I want to include in here because this report mentions a study that was actually a pair of studies that were conducted that really explains just the health the detriment to the health of those that attended this school and their families. Um, and two landmark studies were published, both by Ursula Running Bear and others um, at all. One titled Boarding School Attendance and Physical Health Status of Northern Plains Tribes, published in 2018, and one titled The Impact of Individual and Parental American Indian Boarding School Attendance on Chronic Physical Health of Northern Plains Tribes, published in 2019. This study analyzed the health of over 1,600 members of the American Indians, uh, the term that they use in the study, from the Northern Plains tribes. 48% of the participants had attended a boarding school, 30% had a father that attended the school, and 48% had a mother who attended. These are just some of their findings that I think are really eye-opening that tell us just a detrimental uh, health impact that these schools have. Those who attended boarding schools had significantly lower physical health status than those who did not. So general blanket finding, which we might assume. Those who attended schools had a 44% greater count of past year chronic health issues. So they ask you, right, have you had any chronic health issues in the past year? Yes or no? A 44% greater chance of having that if you had attended one of the schools. Attendees were more than three times likely to have cancer in the past year more than twice as likely to have tuberculosis in the past year, 60% more likely to have arthritis, 81% more likely to have diabetes, 95% more likely to have high cholesterol, 61% more likely to be anemic, and 60% more likely to have gallbladder disease compared to those that did not attend a school. So, I mean, like I said, these two studies are landmark studies in that they are the first that have scientifically quantified the detrimental health impacts of this school system, not to mention, right, the trauma and the deaths that were caused. And I mean, the, the ethnic cleansing that were caused by the schools, but it's just evidence of the generational health impacts that the schooling system had, right? Just one small part of how this has been carried forward generationally. Anything to add on that? Uh, no, no. I mean, and these, we, I guess the only thing I would add is we have to keep in mind those figures you just um, used are survivors. That doesn't exactly. count like the thousands that they're finding in these graves, right? Like those are just the survivors. Or I mean, and, the yeah. thousands that have died in of these causes before right now, right? Yeah. Well, and, the, and, and, and again, going back centuries, and it doesn't obviously count the millions during the conquest problem. Right. So yeah. Um, it doesn't count those either. So again, um, I mean, it's it's genocide by every definition. 100%. All right. So that is volume one of this report coming out of the Department of the Interior. We will continue to cover these reports as they're being published. I think it's important to connect, you know, the things that are happening now and the things that are the, the U.S. government are finding on their own and admitting to, you know, finally 
with, I guess I don't say finally, because in 1928 and 1969, like this is a long chain, right, that we've explained here. But, you know, we have the historical episodes on, you know, how the government was dealing with the indigenous tribes throughout time and history. And we are going to keep covering the modern, you know, reports by the government and their investigations and what they're uncovering as well. Um, if you enjoyed that episode, consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later.